Welcome to Copyright Clearance Center's podcast series. I'm Christopher Keneally for Velocity of Content. It's Friday, December 2nd, 2022. Today, as we do each week, we check in with Publishers Weekly on news from the world of books and publishing. And Albany's PW Senior Writer joins me today from New York City. Welcome back to the program, Andrew. Hey there, Chris. Paramount has chosen to terminate the deal for its Simon & Schuster division to be acquired by Penguin Random House. The news came last week. Yes, it's all over. There will be no appeal. There will be no mega merger. Uh, And as we talked about on this show just before the Thanksgiving holiday, uh, it was very unlikely that Simon & Schuster parent company Paramount was going to want to double down with Penguin Random House and roll the dice on this appeal. But there was a little wrinkle here. There was a little surprise. And part of this owes to the timeline because while legally speaking, the parties had until, well, pretty much this week uh, to file their appeal or to request an extension of time to appeal Judge Pan's decision, there was another deadline to play too here. And that was the party's purchase agreement. That agreement was set to expire, I believe, on November 22nd. And of course, without a purchase agreement, there can be no purchase. And the news came in the form of a 8K financial filing by Paramount Brass, noting that they had decided to let the agreement expire, and with that, terminated the deal for Penguin Random House. And they also noted in this 8K filing that Penguin Random House was now obligated to pay a $200 million termination fee to Paramount. Now, Penguin Random House officials, for their part, issued a statement reiterating that they believe Judge Florence Pan got the decision wrong in blocking this merger and that they very much wanted to move forward with an appeal. However, they had no choice but to accept Paramount's decision. Uh, Meanwhile, in a note to Simon & Schuster employees, uh, SNS CEO Jonathan Karp wrote that he really had no information or any ideas about what comes next for the publisher, uh, how long it might uh, take to revive a sale of the company to another party, which is a little more complicated now than it was back in 2020 when the PRH bid was first announced. Uh, In its filing, Paramount officials reiterated their intention to go all in on streaming and to get out of the publishing business. So there is going to be a sale coming in the future for Simon and Schuster, even though Paramount officials called Simon and Schuster a valuable but non-core business. So just like that, it's over. There's no appeal. There's no merger. And as we look ahead to 2023, there's still no clarity about where Simon and Schuster is going to land. And on that open question of the future fate of Simon & Schuster, Andrew, there's speculation that a purchase by private equity is increasingly likely. So what are the educated guesses out there as to what's next for SNS? Well, they're all educated guesses for sure. I mean, we have some information, but not a lot of information. And so I, I guess we could just call them guesses at this point. I do think private equity is probably in the mix, right? Depending on the market for Simon & Schuster this second time around. And there are a lot of factors that could play into that market. And of course, at trial, executives at HarperCollins and at the Hachette Book Group said that they would indeed be interested in bidding if Simon & Schuster came back on the market, if, if this Penguin Random House purchase didn't go through. And I definitely feel like News Corp, which is the parent company of HarperCollins, you know, just judging from its public statements, they were extremely unhappy with the Penguin Random House winning bid that, you know, the News Corp officials would not miss a chance to go after Simon & Schuster a second time around. Uh, of course, there are other international conglomerates that could also step up. There's been talk of French company Vivendi, who are currently embroiled in a uh, regulatory action over another acquisition of a French publisher, this in Europe. So who knows if they're going to be available for this. 
Uh, you know, it's just all speculation really at this point, though I do expect Paramount will not dither and that we will get a new process in place and a new bid on the table pretty soon. And why would any new deal be more complicated in 2023 than the deal forged in 2020? First and foremost, because of this really, you know, very tight, very well-reasoned decision by Judge Florence Pan in blocking the deal. I think for any existing Big Five publisher, you have to believe that Judge Pan's written opinion, which referenced the Big Five, is already highly concentrated and likely already coordinating, you know, in an anti-competitive way, we should say, that, you know, any bid that would get us to a big four from a big five would require a deft touch, shall we say. Now, here's the thing. Penn's language in her written opinion was tough, for sure. But lawyers tell me that this is still, at the end of the day, one judge in one district. And Penn's tough language may be designed to send a message, to sort of dissuade a sale that would indeed take the big five down to the big four. But that may be really all there is here, because remember, at the end of the day, too, it's the DOJ's call, ultimately, whether or not to challenge a future merger. And the math for any other big five publisher is going to look significantly different than the math looked for this mega publisher with Penguin Random House, uh, already the biggest firm acquiring one of its main rivals. Uh, But the DOJ's math, uh, HarperCollins currently gets about, I believe, a 25% share of the anticipated top-selling books market. So its acquisition of Simon & Schuster would probably get a lot of scrutiny, though it's worth noting that a combined HarperCollins and Simon & Schuster would still be second to Penguin Random House. Hachette, on the other hand, has an 11% share of the bestseller market, so it would likely face a much easier review since a combined Hachette and Simon & Schuster would still trail Penguin Random House and HarperCollins. But I think the problem for Hachette, let's be honest, is getting a winning bid, right? You know, they couldn't get a bid organized the first time around. Can they pull it off now? Uh, but more broadly, I think just economically speaking, everything has changed since 2020, right? There's, you know, inflation, which is still rampant, and supply and printing issues that are persisting. There's still talk of a, a recession perhaps sometime in 23, though those concerns mercifully seem to be easing. Uh, but money for sure is more expensive. Interest rates are up. Sales are down for the publishers too. Profits are under pressure. And there are all these other decisions too, like, you know, the integration of this company, which would be fairly normal for any merger usually, but this all comes on the heel of a pandemic where most of your employees are working remotely, right? So you've got to think that it's going to be incredibly complicated to meld two companies together uh, when you still haven't even got them all back under one roof or two roofs, as the case may be. And of course, Paramount already had the one bidder that was going to pay a lot on the hook and for whom the deal really made sense. Anti-competitive sense, it turned out, but economic sense, and that was Penguin Random House, and that deal was unable to go through. Meanwhile, Simon & Schuster is continuing to post record sales, but it's now showing flat profits, which raises other concerns too. So I guess I'll just say this, and I'll leave it there, that Publishing, as our listeners know, is a mature business, right? There's no untapped innovation waiting to blow up here in the industry. Uh, Prices are about as high as they can go for books, too high in some cases already, right? I'd say at least ebooks. I'm looking at you. Uh, There's really no untapped revenue hidden in this deal. It's concentrated. The market, too, the publishing industry in pretty much all facets is very concentrated. Judge Pan noticed this from, from rights trading to book selling. And you get to deal with Amazon. You already have a giant in the field. So, 
Despite these uncharacteristic sales rises over 2020 and 2021, you know, there's not a lot of room for growth in the publishing industry. Profit margins are historically tight in publishing and they're tightening up again. All of which is to say is that I have no idea who's going to step up next to buy Simon & Schuster. But I'm reasonably sure that the buyer pool is pretty select. And over time, we're going to get a real good sense of of who's in that pool. And I think one final thing I'm going to bring up about this, because I've had some people ask me and some people in the media ask me what losing this deal might mean for Penguin Random House's CEO, Marcus Dole, uh, with the suggestion being that this failed deal may have cost him some credibility or maybe even put his job in danger. I don't see any indication that the failure to complete this acquisition is going to negatively impact Marcus or push him to leave one way or the other at all. Marcus has been a strong leader for many years at Penguin Random House. There is no one more bullish on the future of the book business. And from a corporate perspective, look, he took a shot. It was a bold shot indeed, and it ended up not working out. But he took his shot. You have to respect that. And there's no secret here that the deal might have been blocked. I don't think anyone was under any illusions that this deal might have been blocked. So I think any talk at this stage that Marcus Dole may face repercussions within Bertelsmann, well, I don't think there's anything to suggest that's true. HarperCollins, meanwhile, has seen a portion of the company's workforce on strike since November 10th. Yes, so we're now about a month into this strike, which was authorized by HarperCollins Local 2110, which is part of the United Auto Workers. And unfortunately, there seems to be nothing really happening at all here besides, you know, workers on the picket line. There's been no new contract proposals that we're aware of from HarperCollins management, uh, no talks that we're aware of, like I said, just the picket line, which is really unfortunate. Uh, The union, of course, represents more than 250 employees in a variety of departments, editorial sales, publicity, design, marketing, legal. And, you know, the workers are all asking for better pay, yes, which is no surprise given that, you know, the historically low pay in the publishing industry. But I think what's interesting here is that the workers are also pushing for a, a greater commitment to staff diversity, which I think is an important and very interesting point uh, to this action. And I have to say, I'm not feeling terribly optimistic about a swift resolution here, given that the strike comes as Harper's already begun cutting costs and jobs and recently reported losses and, and tightened profits in this economy. Uh, The union, of course, has received a lot of support, including from Harper authors. And as we talked about in our last podcast before Thanksgiving, from the stage at the National Book Awards. So there's really not much new to report this week in terms of of the strike. Now, does this complicate any future HarperCollins bid to buy Simon & Schuster? No, I don't think it does at all, Uh, at least not from a corporate perspective, though it would certainly be jarring, a jarring optic and jarring from a PR perspective to to be, you know, denying modest raises and concessions to your employees while offering billions to buy another company. But look, anything can happen. We could get a contract offer. This could be settled quickly. We could get a bid for Simon & Schuster. Everything is on the table, too. But I'll just, you know, to close that out, I'll just say, let's hope that this worker action is resolved soon and that everyone can get back to their jobs. And as we head toward year's end, Andrew, can you offer an update on trends in trade book sales? 2022 has certainly been a roller coaster year for the industry. Yeah, sure has. And so holiday sales are, are just starting to get rolling and things are off to a slow start for sure. The week before Thanksgiving, which is usually sort of a bellwether week for how the holiday season is going to go, showed that sales are off uh, almost 17% from the comparable week in 2021. This at Atlas that report to MPD Bookscan. However, 
MPD officials warn us that things look worse than they actually are because 2021 had an earlier start to the holiday buying. So the numbers are going to look bad, but they're actually on track uh, with 2020 sales volumes, and things are probably going to pick up a little bit as the sales season goes on. And I think publishers are feeling okay about holiday sales this year, especially with signs that inflation is indeed starting to ease maybe a little bit, and you know, gas prices are now coming down, and there's nothing better for book sales than when people feel like they have a little room in their, in their budgets to, to buy gifts and buy books. So, and there are also some big books on the market here too. You have Michelle Obama's The Light We Carry, uh, The Juggernaut that is Colleen Hoover. Uh, Brandon Sanderson has a new book and Jeff Kinney's newest Diary of a Wimpy Kid book is out now in topping bestsellers list. Now, prior to Thanksgiving week, unit sales were down about 6.1% below the comparable week in 2021. But again, we're on par with 2020 sales, which were, we should point out, well above 2019 sales. And I'm going to reiterate this point. We've made it throughout the year on this podcast, is that no one in the publishing industry expected these massive sales spikes of 2020 and 2021 would become the new norm. In the wake of the pandemic, there were obviously some 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 new trends at play here. And I think the question all year has been how much of the gains from 20 and 21, which were very much unexpected gains, how much of that would the industry have to give back? And it appears at the end of the year that that's only going to be a modest amount, which I think has to feel really good for publishers, especially given the economic issues and the supply chain challenges that publishers face in 2022. Now, I don't know about you but I'm making a list. You know, in the case of my wife, for example, it's a very long list because she is a voracious fiction reader, but I am going to be doing my part. I've already started doing my part this holiday season, which is, of course, my plug to say, Ahem. <laughs> head out to your favorite indie bookseller this weekend and do some holiday shopping. And another shameless plug, if you need any help on what to buy, you can check out Publishers Weekly's recently released best books of 2022 list for some recommendations. I promise you there is something for everyone on that list. Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly Senior Writer, thanks for joining me on the program. My pleasure, as always. Coming up on Velocity of Content, horror and true crime, uplifting family-oriented tales worthy of Disney, and journalism digging up dirt on the rich and famous. Such stories are not just pitch perfect for podcasting. Once they become hits, the shows are fit and ready to make the journey to film and TV when Hollywood calls. But as book authors have discovered over a century of adaptations, the appetite for content in La La Land is voracious, leading to business terms that require absolute control of intellectual property. For the Rights Tech Summit in September, I moderated a panel discussion laying out what creators, performers, and rights owners should know when it comes to developing content for audiobooks and podcasts. Alexia Badat with Claris Law summarized the different attitudes. In the film TV space, traditionally, because of the distribution model, from the moment that a piece of content is conceived to when it gets to the audience, there are many, many parties involved in between. You have studios, networks, distributors, platforms. And so for a piece of content to go from one hand to the next, if the original person who's making the deal doesn't hold all the rights, it can be difficult to enter into all of those successive transactions. Whereas in the podcast industry, which has you know to date largely been RSS distributed, there's you know more podcasts going behind paywalls now, where literally the producer can just get to the audience in one click, for lack of a better word, you know, that that rights chain is a little bit easier. 
The New Hit Factory, podcasts and audiobooks, next on CCC's podcast series. That's all for now. Our producer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. You can subscribe to the program wherever you go for podcasts, and please do follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. You can also find Velocity of Content on YouTube as part of the Copyright Clearance Center channel there. I'm Christopher Keneally. Thanks for listening.